Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon presents Part 1 of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 17. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Last week, after our discussion about the rich man and Lazarus, I ran to get groceries. And there was this woman in the parking lot at the grocery store. I've never seen her before. She had on a beautiful long red wool coat and a red beautiful hat. And she came up to me in the parking lot and said, ma'am, do you have any money? And I said, oh, no, I'm sorry, I don't. And, And I ran into the store. I got into the store, I opened my purse, and I had a big wad of money, you know, and I'm like, oh, Lord, I need you. And I was so convicted, and I went back out into the icy parking lot, she was about halfway down now. I've never seen her before. I said, ma'am, I'm sorry, I did have money in my purse. Here you go. And she said, thank you, I've never seen her again. She's not a regular with a cardboard sign. I don't know who she was, but how could I stand here and preach about the rich man stepping right over Lazarus day after day after day, and the next morning I did the same thing. So I love being in God's word, and I love what a reminder it is to my spirit to try to live God's word with his grace. So tonight we hear, I can, well, I can resist anything except temptation, right? But Oscar Wilde is quoted, the Irish poet and playwright is quoted to have said that quote, but we know temptation's been around since the beginning of humankind. It's nothing new. Satan himself was the original tempter of humanity. And Jesus says tonight to his disciples in Luke 17, temptations to sin are sure to come. Folks, temptation for humanity is an absolute certainty. Jesus himself tells us. And I started thinking about temptation and the temptation of Saint Anthony of Egypt. St. Anthony the Great, he's one of the earliest desert fathers of the church. He's considered the father of Eastern monasticism. And it was near the end of the great persecution of Diocletian that St. Anthony the Great founded the Eastern monastic life. Now, before the rise of Diocletian, Eusebius, who was a historian, wrote that there was a little peace in the church. Christians had lived relatively free from persecution for a few decades. But in the third century, Rome started to codify anti-Christian laws. Does that sound familiar? Codify anti-Christian laws. And the persecution was relatively limited and local, but it came to a halt following the death of Valerian. And in the beginning of the fourth century, when Emperor Diocletian began to reign, it became known as a time for Christians as the Great Persecution. A series of laws began to purge the Christians from public office, destroy Christian churches, Christian literature, punish those who refused to offer sacrifice to the Roman deities, the Roman little g-gods. So it was a very rough time for Christians in the church under the persecution of Diocletian. And it was at this time that Anthony decided he would retire to the desert. And he was a very young age. And he wanted to live and be perfect as, as God your Father is perfect. He wanted to live in perfect solitude and holiness. And he thought if he moved out into the desert, that might happen. He was 20 years old when his parents died. And he was left with his younger sister and responsible for her. So he went to church about six months after his parents died. He was reflecting on the Acts of the Apostles and the way the early Christians lived, how they would sell their possessions and give everything to the needy. And when he went into the church that day, the gospel was about the rich young man. 
And it said, if you would be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Well, that word of God just seared Anthony's heart to the core. And he felt those words applied directly to him. So he sold all the property that he had received. He gave it all to the poor and he put his sister in a convent with pious virgins and left her. And he went to the desert for an austere life to perfect himself in holiness. He saw that this would be the way to do it. The church and the world was full of snares and he would become the earliest desert church father in the Eastern church. And he would have a perfect life out there all alone, praying all day and it would be perfect, right? But guess what? He's out there even in the solitude of the desert and he is just tormented with temptation. So Jesus is right in this verse today. Temptation came to Anthony. He had legendary combat with the devil, many, many longstanding temptations, and he became one of the favorite subjects for artists at this time. Michelangelo draws St. Anthony being tempted by all sorts of things, demons, Salvador Dali, the temptation of St. Anthony, Heronius Bach, a triplicate of the temptations of St. Anthony. Artists were just fascinated thinking all the things he was tempted with out there alone in the desert. But he went through many temptations. He was tempted by lust, by laziness, riches, even riches, tempted with fleshly pleasures while he was in his prayer time. And the key for Anthony, he knew, was to grow deeper in his faith. And he figured out that Satan could be repelled by his fervent prayer, his penitential acts. He did lots of penances and his steadfast endurance in faith. And so what started out in his life, a little mustard seed faith, he had to deepen and grow and mature in his faith to have the strength to fight off temptation. He was convinced, though, that temptations had helped him grow deeper in his faith walk. And maybe some of you feel that way as well in here tonight. He said this, whoever has not experienced temptation cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He knew how much temptation had helped him grow in the faith. They were tests that the Lord was giving him. So Jesus says to the disciples tonight, temptations to sin are sure to come. And it's a certainty for all of us will have temptations. In Hebrews 4, 5, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way. Yet, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's a promise. Jesus was able to fight off temptations. We saw that in Luke chapter 4. We saw him bolstering himself by going out, spending time with the Father, going out to pray. In his Our Father, he prays, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He would fast to strengthen himself. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, preparing himself for that desert wilderness where he'd be tempted. And you'd think, oh, that fasting would make him really weak. But just the opposite, fasting heightens our spiritual awareness, makes us more disciplined, more strong to fight off the evil one. Fasting helps us bulk up our spiritual muscle. And growing knowledge in God's word strengthens us against temptation. Knowing God's word, the Holy Spirit will bring it to mind right when you need it. Jesus himself quoted the word of God to refute Satan's temptation. It's very powerful. So Jesus had just been full of the Holy Spirit. This dove was still on him. That's how John identified him. He went out full of the Holy Spirit to the desert to fight off temptation. So the Holy Spirit helps us. We too are full of that same Holy Spirit that rested on him. We got it in our baptism. We were infused with it, but we got to learn how to live that way. 
We reaffirm the Holy Spirit in our lives in the sacrament of confirmation, but we still are young, you know, and we have to learn to live by the spirit, not by the flesh. That's what Paul tells us over and over again in his letters. So the faith life is a maturation. It's a maturation process of the spiritual life. And Paul told the Corinthians, I had to feed you milk, breast milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger and you still aren't ready. He's like, come on, get with the program, mature in the spiritual walk. We got to form our consciences, form our intellects, form our wills so that we can digest the tougher things that are going to come our way in life. So we need to grow up, right? Grow up, get more spiritually mature so we can bear fruit that will last, eternal fruit. And that's what spiritual maturing is about. So even trees, like when you plant, this is a baby peach tree, you're not going to get peaches for at least three years. You know, you need time to mature, to grow so you can bear eternal fruit for the kingdom of God. So Jesus is telling them temptations to sin are sure to come. And I looked up some different translations. Temptations to sin are sure to come. Also, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. Also, it is impossible for causes for stumbling not to come. Causes for stumbling are going to come. And I like the word stumbling here because when I looked it up in the Greek, this passage, temptation or causes for stumbling or offenses, is really from the Greek word scandalon. It's used only 12 times in the New Testament, I believe, but this is the word used here, scandalon. Scandalon is a stumbling block, a scandal. It's a metaphor in the Bible for an inherently evil behavior or attitude that leads another into sin or destructive behavior. To trip somebody up, to cause somebody else to sin. It's a scandal on any person or evil thing by which one is entrapped or drawn into error of sin. This is very, very serious in the Bible. I'll give you an example in marriage, 50-50, 50% of marriages and in divorce, we're told. Actually, it's about... 42% of first marriages, 60% of second marriages fail, and 73% of third marriages fail. So when you average them all together, it's about 50% of marriages, covenant marriage, don't work. Because could it be because of scandalon, meaning literally to trip someone up or to cause someone else to sin? If one partner in the marriage were unfaithful to their covenant, committed adultery, that's a grave evil, it would be a scandalon to the other partner. First of all, to cause someone else to sin. So the two that are committing adultery outside the marriage, whoever cheated was a scandal on to the person they cheated with, number one. Also, they could now become a scandal on to their existing marital partner who they have wounded so greatly by their sin. And you say, how? Why? How? How does that work? Because of unforgiveness. If that other, if the, let's just say it's the husband, okay? Let's just say. It could be either. It could be either. But I just picked this. If the husband um, had true remorse or true repentance and he asked the wife for forgiveness, Jesus says to us today, she must forgive. What if she can't forgive? What if she can't forgive? What if her husband has been a scandal on to her? An evil thing was done to her. She got entrapped in an error of sin. What if her heart is too wounded? What if her heart is too broken? What if her heart is completely crushed and shattered? What if she can't forgive him? What if the wife can't come to forgiveness and she dies and her eternal salvation is on the line now? <gasps> that's a scandal on. That doesn't seem right. That's a ripoff. Hey, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. She didn't even do anything wrong. Now she goes to hell for unforgiveness. What? 
Jesus Christ is the judge. He's a just judge. He's a fair judge. He knows all the circumstances. He knows all the hearts. He knows every scenario, every detail involved. But Jesus says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. And the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. That's when they said, Lord, increase our faith. How can we do this? This is impossible. We can't do this on our own. We, uh, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith, exclamation point in my Bible. How is forgiveness possible, Lord? Seven times. Are you kidding me? Forgiveness is super, super hard for people. Super hard. Especially if you've been wounded. Especially if it wasn't your fault. Especially if the other person was wrong. Especially if you, it was unjust. They say, Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, and he's still talking about forgiveness. If you had faith, the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this sycamine tree, be rooted up and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Oh, now to root up a tree is no easy task. Have you tried it lately? <laughs> that is not easy. And if you had faith the size of a little mustard seed, you could root up a tree. And not only a tree, but a sycamine tree. And that's not a typo. It's a true tree called a sycamine tree in the Holy Land. And it's nearly impossible to root up. Why? The sycamine tree has such an elaborate, extensive root system. And what you see above the surface is just a little glimpse of what you see under the ground. And that's what got the Titanic in trouble. It's like an iceberg. You see a little bit on top, but underneath the surface, way more lies under that you do not see. That's how the sycamine tree is. Beautiful on top, this big elaborate network of roots underneath. They grow easily because those roots go way down to the water table and get water. And so they're very common trees, and there's not a lot of wood in the Holy Land, so these are often used for wood. In fact, the caskets of the mummies in Egypt were made out of sycamine trees. So the expansive root system underground goes very deep to find water. Now, the sycamine tree produces very, very, very bitter, bitter fruit. They're little figs. They're called sycamine figs, psychonia. And Luke is the only one that records anything about a sycamine tree. And it's so good. Now, remember, Jesus is talking about forgiving and how hard it is. And the, the seven times, and the apostles say, increase our faith. The roots of unforgiveness go down very, very, very deep and spread extensively in your life if it's unchecked. The deeper you let your unforgiveness grow, the harder it's going to be to uproot and get rid of it. You gotta keep a check on unforgiveness. The sycamine tree is very, very hard to eradicate. Very hard to get rid of. You can chop down the tree with an axe, but you still have that entire root system under the ground, a huge circumference, and that's going to sprout right back up and grow again. Then you got to get the stump out because you got to really eradicate, and then you got to dig the roots out. So it's very, very, very hard to get rid of a sycamine tree. So it is very hard to get rid of unforgiveness in your life because it's a root that is very deep and bitter and extensive and expansive, and it grows and grows and grows. And to get down to the root of unforgiveness and eradicate it completely from your heart soil is going to take faith, something you can't do on your own. But if you just have the faith of a mustard seed, just a little speck from Jesus, it's possible. Especially if one has been wounded or deeply hurt by another's scandalous actions, your heart shattered, your life shattered, 
Unforgiveness can spread and get really anchored deeply down in the soil over the years. People can look on the part above the soil and say, wow, she looks beautiful. Look at her. She's really thriving. And underneath, you're a mess of tangled up roots. And the Lord said, if you had faith, the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this sycamine tree, be rooted up and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Faith, even that tiny, even that tiny. That's what it takes to forgive, faith. We can't do it all alone. We try, we fail. We try, we fail. We try, we take it back. We take it back. We take it back. We take it back. Oh, did you hear what she did to me now? now do you, and then, and I remember, and I have a memory. I am, we need just a tiny, tiny speck of faith to forgive. Just the size of a mustard seed. Jesus promises it. Now, the sycamine tree has sycamine figs. They're called sycamorous figs or ficus. And they're different than other Bible figs. Because the other Bible figs are awesome. And they're one of the seven species of the promised land. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that they're one of the seven wonderful things that the promised land produces. And you have to bring one-tenth of the first fruits of the fig to the temple to offer. But the sycamine fig is the poor man's fig. Nobody wants it. It's so bitter. It's way different than the rich man's fig. It's the poor man's fig, and it's very, very bitter. The rich man's fig is wonderful, juicy, beautiful. Oh, but the sycamine fig is so bitter, it takes several hours to eat just one. But it has saved lives before in times of famine. When that was all there was to eat, they would exist on sycamine figs. And they're not good. They're bitter. In Jericho, there's sycamine figs. And uh, when I was there in the Holy Land, we looked at a tree in two chapters. We're having uh, Zacchaeus. He climbs into the sycamine tree. And I asked the guide, I looked up and there were all these husks and these sycamine figs. And, and I asked him, uh, do people eat these sycamine figs? And he said, no way. He said, they are a very, very, very poor man's fruit. We don't even need them anymore. But Amos the prophet knew about sycamines. He was from the southern kingdom of Judah, but he preached to the northern kingdom. The Lord sent him north. This prophet knew about figs. He was from Tekoya. He was tending sheep when the Lord God called him to be his mouthpiece, to be a prophet. He didn't come from a long line of prophets. He was a sheep herder and a cattle breeder. But we're told in Amos 7.14 that Amos was also a dresser of sycamore trees, the sycamine fig. And so I looked up what it means to dress a tree. Amos was a prophet and a dresser of a sycamore tree, but a different type of dresser. What does it mean to dress a sycamore tree? The sycamore fig needed a husk around the fruit, and that has to be pierced at just a certain time for pollination to take place. So the dresser would have a long stick with a poker on it, and they'd poke the figs so that they could be pollinated. So that's a fig tree dresser to pollinate the fruit for harvest. In nature, it's naturally done by the sting of a wasp. So there are fig wasps in the Holy Land. God created a special fig wasp to pollinate the fig tree piercing the husk to pollinate the fruit at just the right time. But sycamine trees retaliate when fig wasps don't service them as much as they need, and they need a fig dresser like Amos. So piercing the fruits is called dressing the tree. Now, sometimes people who have the hardest time forgiving have been stung many times in life, like by the wasp. You know, you get stung, you forgive. You get stung you forgive. You get stung again, and, and, and you start getting that hard shell around your heart again, and the roots start going down deeper again of your sycamine tree. And getting stung over and over and over makes it more difficult to forgive. And the repentance has to be genuine, right? But the Lord says forgive seven times, or as many times as needed. The fruit of the tree with unforgiving roots 
that has been stung is very bitter fruit. We get so bitter with unforgiveness. The fruit of unforgiveness is very, very bitter when you've been stung many times. But Jesus gives us this hope that just a little mustard seed faith will help us forgive. To break free from the sycamine tree. To uproot it, tear it, break free, and throw it into the sea. So, temptations, also called scandals or offenses to sin, are sure to come. But then he says, but woe, which means death or curse, but woe to him whom by they come. Now, woe to him by whom they come, the scandalon, the temptations. If you're tempting someone else into sin, that's bad. We can lead others to Christ. We can also lead others away from Christ. And that's a woe, 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 death to partner, to help someone else stumble from possibly eternal salvation. You can think back to college days. You can think back to memories. You can think back if you ever caused another brother or sister to stumble. Concerning abortion, if either partner encourages the other partner to partake in abortion, which is a grave intrinsic moral evil, then to end that new life, that's an intrinsically evil act that scandalizes the other partner. So for instance, if the boyfriend says, I'll take you for the abortion, that's causing an intrinsically evil act, or the mother, or the grandma, or the whoever. That's a scandal on. Scandal has to be something intrinsically evil, first of all. But our merciful God, hear this, our merciful God wants that sin of abortion confessed and repented for, not celebrated in a march for choice, pro-choice. He wants it confessed. And then there's great hope of being set free for both people who repent and get forgiven in confession. So, so always remember, it just takes the faith of a little tiny speck to walk into that confessional and to be completely forgiven. And uh, just to pray. If you don't have that kind of faith, like I can't even think about that, then pray that, oh, Lord, just please give me the faith the size of a mustard seed because he promises. So temptations are sure to come, but woe to him by who they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. Serious, folks, because millstones were used for grinding wheat and barley and other grains, and they weigh thousands of pounds. You cannot budge them. You, you can't even begin to budge them. They're so heavy. And it would be better to have a millstone around your neck and cast into the sea, which means absolute certain physical death, right? That would be better. Certain physical death would be better than certain spiritual death, which is eternal, hellfire for all eternity. So while there's still time, while there's still breath, Lord, give us that mustard seed faith that we need to confess our sin. Then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin, to take an innocent person and, and, and cause them in some way by your intrinsic evil for them to enter into sin and possibly a life of sin, get trapped in sin. So this chapter really shines a light on sin and the effects of sin. Sin kills. Sin destroys. Sin has ripple and ripple and ripple and ripple and ripple effects on humanity. And sin is never done alone in isolation. People think they're doing a sin all on their own. No, it affects the family. It affects the world. It affects the mystical body of Christ. Sin always, always affects others. And so, Scandalon, right now in the papers, we have a perfect example of Scandalon, intrinsic evil making others fall. And it's the church, they're even calling it, this is one of the news stations, the church abuse scandal. It's a scandal on. It's a scandal on because it's an evil behavior or attitude that leads another into sin or a destructive behavior. 
It's a scandalon because an evil person or an evil thing by which one is entrapped or drawn into the error of sin. It's very serious for those who cause this. Very serious, gravely serious. And also the children or a person who's trapped in an act like this, there's ramifications, you know, for their life and their future life. So it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then one should cause one of the little ones to sin. Physical death is an absolute certainty. But until physical death, until we die, there is still room to repent from any sin. And to spare ourselves from eternal spiritual death in hell forever, right? For all of us. Hell's a choice. You know, we have to choose to repent. We repent or we don't. It's, it's our choice. He'll forgive us if we repent. Even the size of a little mustard seed. Faith that much. He will forgive you. If you have faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to the sycamore tree, be rooted up and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now, does Jesus literally want us rooting up trees? Is that what he's saying? Because some people take these verses literally, but they are hyperbole in the Hebrew language. And this is a modern day hyperbole. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Well, does that mean that I literally want to eat a horse? No, it's hyperbole. So a hyperbole is an exaggerated statement or claim that is not meant to be taken literally. So Jesus literally doesn't want us uprooting trees. He wants us to have faith in him. And just mustard seed sized faith can uproot those deep, deep sins, especially unforgiveness. And redemption is possible, which is the tiniest bit of faith while we still have breath. And that's because of his grace. Those roots of grace can redeem us. And Paul says that you might be strengthened through his spirit in the inner man and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And, and that with this type of grace, you would have power at work within you to be able to do far more abundantly anything that you ask or think. So I want to also tell you a misinterpretation of this passage because it happened in my family. This is a hyperbole. It's not meant to be taken literally. This is how Matthew says it. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. So when my dad was dying of cancer, and he was a man of great faith, a woman came from another church, and she told my dad on his deathbed, if you had faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed, you could tell that cancer to leave your body and it'd be gone. You don't have enough faith, Mike. So I guess my dad didn't even have a little speck because he died three months later of cancer. I think his faith was mountain-sized, yet he still died, and he showed us how to die, and he placed his total faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, it's an hyperbole. I just don't want you to misuse it because I've heard it misused like that. Jesus was saying that even a tiny bit of faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed, would help you overcome mountainous obstacles in your life. If you have that kind of faith, be not afraid. I am with you through it all. And so a few years later, her own husband died of cancer. And I don't know what she must have thought, you know, but it's, it's a misinterpretation of the scripture. That was part one of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.